Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Politicanas. Today we're on episode 41. It is August 19th, and today we're going to be talking almost exclusively about the Afghanistan situation. So, of course, you have your host today, myself, Tyler, and Pratik and Nick. How are you guys doing tonight? It's been a very rainy day. I think it's a little apse given the discussion we have teed up. Um, I think all of us have sort of turned into... I don't want to say armchair experts like everyone makes fun of, but I think the past couple of days have really uh, made all three of us really focus more on the Afghan situation, which we've talked about in previous months, but now we're at, we've actually done a full dive into it. And I feel like all of us know a lot more about it than we have in previous episodes. What I find funny is that me and Nick were talking about this stuff in our last episode and it was completely non-planned. Like we just went into this, like, all right, this is going to be like a five minute segment that segment went on for 30 minutes and it was just like you got to see how there's so much differences in opinion like the amount of times that all three of us have probably argued with people about afghanistan is ridiculous like and it's like there's so many strong opinions on both sides like i even have a friend who's from afghanistan that he's been in america and because he's in america he um was like you know all this stuff happened he can't he's like separated from his family and friends and back in his homeland and like he has no clue what's gonna happen it's just terrifying but it's like the amount of like people that have debated about this from all different angles from like the financial side the you know like the humanitarian side it's crazy how there's so much diversity right now this might be one of the most bipartisan issues that we've ever looked at and it's like Everyone has a has an opinion about it. I don't know if it's bipartisan, but it's like interpartisan. Like yeah. each party within each party, everyone has their own individual points of view and perspective. And I think that's because it's been going on for so long and before our latest political ideologies were even formed. Before Trump came into office, we've already had 16 years of this Middle East crisis. It just kind of came to a head as of late. And we've ripped the Band-Aid off with the Biden administration finally announcing we're going to be leaving Afghanistan, even though, in my opinion, simply announcing you're going to leave a place that you've been in for 20 years, allowing a terrorist organization to simply wait you out it's not the best strategy but regardless we're going to get into all that first off we're going to have Pratik lay out a little bit of the history of the Taliban and then we're going to dive right into uh the entire situation for you guys okay so um the Taliban obviously as you guys know them they emerged in 1994 following an Afghan civil war where they basically um developed their um Sharia law interpretations and they were more strict on what they thought about how people should go about things in their Islamic country. And this led to the Afghan civil war. And this went on for a few years. And eventually the Taliban emerged and the Taliban became the regime of Afghanistan. Following that, they were announced as the legitimate um, ruling country by three or four nations, Pakistan, Iran, and some, and um, a few other like, you know, totalitarian nations. And then following that, um, there was the 2001-9-11 where, you know, the, the, what is it? The Al-Qaeda people bombed the United States and we decided to respond and we contacted Afghanistan because Osama bin Laden, who was the perpetrator of the entire 9-11 attack, was living in Afghanistan, um, protected by the Taliban regime. And the Taliban refused to hand um, was Osama bin Laden over to the United States. And that led us to attack um, Afghanistan on ni- after in uh, October 
2000, follow, 2001 following the September 11th attack. And since then, we've been in that country until right now when we left. And now the Taliban have taken over the area. It, it, we only, we actually took out the Af- uh, the Taliban government. They had been there for six years, I believe, from 1995 to 2001. We only it only took ten days to wipe out this government completely. Um, but since then, they've sporadically been popping up. Every so often, you hear about them in the news. They did a bombing, so on and so forth. We've had other tor- terrorist organizations as well pop up. But the Taliban has consistently uh, raised their head. And eventually, in 2018, we initiated po- potentially some kind of peace deal. I think Trump initiated that. Uh, he got that through with the Taliban. And then in 2020, uh, or sorry, 2021, obviously, Biden's finally saying, we need to get out of here. We've been here for 21 years. So I guess in March, so I guess the first topic of conversation would be, um, do you guys think this was a good time to leave Afghanistan? Regardless of why we I got wanted, it. Sorry. I wanted to add one more thing sure. before we talk about this stuff too. So the Taliban um, obviously was like, you know, a ruling government at one point, but the Taliban had a lot of Sharia law elements to them. So they believe that women should not get have an education. They believe that people that are in the country shouldn't be allowed to live democratically, per se. The religious religious theocracy should control the lives of the people living in that region. And they also believe that if if like you know let's say um w- women have to wear the burqa if they um you know like appear- if they get accused of cheating on their husbands they get stoned to death gay people any of those types of people that are you know that are not looked at as being like positive to the islamic religion are also put to death stoned to death persecuted tortured and anyone that speaks against the taliban regime can also be persecuted um or like you know tortured to death and or just be put to death and that was part of the reason why there was such a split on us getting involved i forgot to put in this story but we talked about it last week but the republicans whenever they wanted to get involved the bush administration particularly they were all about fighting against the terrorists and you know fighting back because the they were basically holding Osama bin Laden, who we thought was the primary perpetrator to the attack that happened in 9-11. While the Democrats that were there were also on the same argument, but they also believed that in terms of the humanitarian side, the Taliban doesn't deserve to be in existence because the Taliban is persecuting, torturing, and, you know, treating their people literally like crap. And that was the reason why this whole situation kind of like, you know, exploded and everyone has their thoughts. But I wanted to lay that in there just because we get like, you know, the understanding of what the Taliban is, because they're not just like some fallen government. They're also like a terrorist organization that was the government. Yeah. And what's also interesting. So they're forcing people to wear women to wear niqabs, which means you also have to cover your face, not just your body with the hijab. Um, what's interesting about these guys is that now they're coming out and saying to the world, look, in the 90s, we were harsh. We didn't let women get educated. We didn't let them work. But even though we did that back then, we're not going to be doing that today. And that's the big lie that they're telling the world to finally legitimize themselves as a government before they can enforce the laws they actually want to implement. Because it's very clear they do follow Sharia law. If you speak to any of them, they say they follow this book to the to the letter. It's God's word. And that's what this, this, what the Quran and the Hadiths, that's what they say. So 
regardless of what you're hearing in the news or even what these these uh, these Taliban members are saying, be very skeptical that they've reformed themselves and are no longer what they were 20 years ago. The, quite frankly, they are what they were. So I just wanted to lay that groundwork there. Um, but um, Nick, did you have any comments on the situation before we continue? No, the only other thing I'd say is just for a little bit of background of who else is sort of involved in this. One of the big players in the region has been Pakistan or Pratik would definitely correct my pronunciation, Pakistan. Pakistan. Um, Pakistan. I, now I know, now I know. I'm always getting on him for how he pronounces things, and this time I'm, uh, I'm the one in the wrong. So I'll try to keep it up, but no promises. In any case, so with Pakistan, <laughs> the thing is, we had this, sort of the U.S. had this military strategy. It was called the hammer and the anvil. And the idea was that the United States and NATO forces would be the hammer. And Pakistan, the border, the hard border between Afghanistan and Pakistan would be the anvil. So basically the armed forces come in and we're hitting the Taliban against the Pakistani border. The problem is both sides of the border are both ethnic Pashtuns. They see each other as brothers. And Pakistan has supported, I mean, heck, we found Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. He was in plain sight. So it's either one, they were complicit, or two, they were painfully ignorant and inept. So neither one of those paints a good picture of the Pakistani government. Furthermore, they trained up, actually, their security forces trained up the Taliban in the 90s. And now when the United States went in, specifically with Colin Powell, he's like, you're either with us or against us. And so Pakistan was like, okay, well, now on the global stage, we have to say we're against them. Meanwhile, they had trained them, you know, a few years prior. And as a result, the Taliban was pissed off at Pakistan for breaking their end of the bargain, which was, hey, aren't we brothers here? We're, we're all sort of the same people. What's going on? So then over 50,000 Pakistani civilians have actually been killed. Um, I forget if Benazir Bhutto, one of the uh, PMs of Pakistan, she was murdered. I forget if it had any connection to the she Taliban. She was assassinated. Yeah, she was assassinated. And just the whole thing is spilled over very poorly for Pakistan. But on the U.S. side, our perspective is really hey, you've been harboring these terrorists for a long time, even though we've made some progress or we had made some progress in Afghanistan. Pakistan, again, was a hard border where we're not going to invade that country, but they're not exactly working with us um, in all honesty. So it was just a very frustrating relationship between the two of us. And then that's, of course, further complicated with, you know, India and the relationship there, the tensions there um, between those two. But I, I don't know, man. The one thing... And in, in my opinion is that I can, so I've been watching a lot of documentaries recently on this stuff. And there's one that stands out to me, um, which, oh gosh, am I really going to blank on this right now? It's by vice. Um, oh, I, saw I guess, that. I guess I'll have to, God, I'll, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. But in any case, it was sort of going through and documenting a lot of us soldiers and what the experience has been like. Oh, I think it's called This Is What Winning Looks Like. It was published in 2013 is when it was put out. And you basically follow all these U.S. soldiers as they're trying to train up some of the local Afghan police and security forces. Now, this is not to reflect on the Afghani special forces, who I'm sure are serious about their stuff and that there are some capable commanders. But the day-to-day -day police that they sort of profile in this, you've got all sorts of rampant corruption. No one seems to really care about this stuff. Half the time they're high, which if you smoke weed, that's chill. But if you have a firefight going on and you're blazed out of your mind and just shooting into what could be civilians, I, I don't know. And of course, all documentaries are a little bit biased. They're trying to make a point. They're showing the most 
you know, sort of out there clips to really get your attention. But one of the things which has been well documented and appeared in that documentary was the fact that some of these local police forces, the side that we're supporting, U.S. soldiers had a lot of moral issues with them and kind of had to look past where, for example, you'd have the heads of these police groups where they'd be older men with power and they'd be sexually abusing and commercially exploiting young boys. And what would happen is these cases would go to court. You know, Afghanistan has built up this whole court system and it's, it's all sort of corrupt. Um, but that aside, it would go to court. These people would get sent there and they'd get their feathers ruffled a bit, but nothing would really happen. So I don't know, just overall, it's very frustrating to me. Um, we can go into some of the specifics if we want, but it's frustrating to me that we've sort of, um, to Pratik's point last episode of engaged in this nation building, which I don't know how well it's panned out. In some cases, our allies are as morally reprehensible as the enemy. Yeah, right, and, well, we're going to talk about nation building later, yeah. but we will get there. I, I just want to add, I wanna... actually, in, in 95, when they first came into power, a lot of the people welcomed the Taliban because the government was so corrupt, because they didn't trust the government and the governmental system. So they're like, finally, someone's bringing some true uh, Islamic law to our land. That's something they welcomed. But after experiencing it for a number of years, they realized it wasn't exactly what most of the people wanted inevitably. Um, sorry, Pratik. Yeah, so I wanted to also add some more background to what's going on right now. So basically, we have spent close to $2.2 trillion over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. Um, there's been all kinds of debates about that, which we can get into in more detail. But like, the argument is that we spent a lot of money over there, but we spent $2.2 trillion, But it's been over 20 years, so it depends on what your perspective is. 20 years is a long time, so it amortizes. But then you also have other things. So right now we have a we have fifteen thousand Americans remaining in Afghanistan after Taliban's takeover. Um, also, there's like millions of Afghani's that are currently in Afghanistan that were pro the United States and they were fighting alongside us against the Taliban. And you know that we were in support of a majority. We were we were the ones that were liked by majority of that nation. Well, those people are all going to be persecuted, tortured, and potentially put to death along with the people that are Americans, which our situation is going to be much worse on how they treat Americans in that country. But the Biden administration has been kind of lax on how they want to you know, discuss it. They're saying that they're going to get them back somehow or another. There have been some planes that they've boarded a lot of American people back, but there's still like a large number that is still unknown on how many Americans are still in that region. And again, because you're going to have all these people tortured, persecuted, murdered, you know, killed any, you know, like, you know, just like treated horribly from both Afghanistanis and Americans. The debate behind a lot of people that are liberal and people that are like me are is that, you know, these people are still like they are still humans. And we need to make sure that whether they're Afghanis, whether they're Americans, we're all humans and we're all in this together. So it's that debate. This debate is kind of caught on. It depends on what side you're on. I personally am against the financial debate on this because I feel like, you know, human life is much more important than how much money that you're looking at. But it's been 20 years since we've been there. And this does seem like a disaster. And personally, if I believe that we will talk about this too, but if this was Trump, what would have happened? And more than likely, the argument that is being placed is that you know, Trump created this thing and Biden got out, Biden got out. So we should all blame Trump. But in reality, Biden shut down millions of things that Trump originally decided or planned to do. 
And why didn't he do this one? Well, it was also one of his presidential promises that he would leave Afghanistan. What is something that he so shut down? I wanted to um, he shut down the Paris. He put, brought back the Paris climate. No, I, I'm saying one with Afghanistan. Them. What did Biden shut down? That no, Trump no, had he initiated? hasn't. He hasn't shut down anything. That's what I'm saying. Is that the argument is that when it was Trump that was doing all this stuff, whenever Biden gave his speech, Biden said that this all happened because of Trump, and Trump wanted us to leave, and we basically got out. So we shouldn't be blaming Biden. We should be blaming Trump. My argument is. That sure, like I'm not the biggest fan of Trump's foreign policy, but at the same time, Trump did not leave that country. And if this was the situation that if Trump left and this all this stuff would have happened, it would have been all, all of Trump's fault. But in this situation, it happened under Biden's watch, and Biden hasn't really like followed all of Trump's foreign policy negotiations or like you know or done whatever Trump was doing. So I don't think I think the argument is a little bit mute. But my point is that there's a lot of sides, there's a lot of scopes, there's a lot of angles that you can look at this. But in reality, the main thing that we have to worry about is that there's 15,000 plus Americans that are in Afghanistan right now. And there's a millions of other Afghani civilians that are currently living there that were pro the US and anti Taliban who because they are against their government and are currently protesting against the Taliban regime, many of them will be persecuted, tortured or put to death. And I think that's the saddest way to look at it, but that's the angle that we should be focusing on more than all of these other political arguments and whether Trump's right or Biden's right and all this other stuff. Because in the end of the day, millions of people are going to die and it's going to happen because America left. Yeah, but even when America was there, 170,000 Afghans died, along with 2,300 Americans. And you're definitely going to see an increase in that number. I would say if you were we have to leave eventually whether it's now or in 10 and 15, 30, whoever knows how long. We had to leave eventually. If you're going to choose to leave now, that's fine. But what I had an issue was was with the approach of it. Sure, Trump could have said he wanted to leave, but I don't... Maybe he would have done the exact same thing. I don't know. But the reason this failed so horribly was because of the management of the situation, not necessarily the fact that we left. So when Biden's putting it on Trump, first of all, Biden ran on the fact that he was the opposite of Trump. So to say I listened to him in this one regard and it ended horribly and trying to blame Trump is ridiculous. But for me, again, if you're going to announce to a nation that you've been uh, colonizing to some degree, state building for 20 years now and say, oh, we're actually going to leave at this time, this date. And there's groups that are just anchoring for power. The Afghani government that we were supposedly funding, giving them tons of military equipment, training them. They were supposedly able to stand on their feet. After 20 years, we weren't able to keep them stable enough to last 10 days against these terrorist organizations. Um, It's just a horrible mess. I I thought it was, I, I just wish it was managed better. I want to add one thing too. It's like, this is the Ghani government that was there right now. But even Afghanistan is technically operated as a democracy since 2000, since we won the war. So since then, we've had various regimes. And that has been part of the issue with Afghanistan as well. Because as Tyler alluded to earlier, that there's been a lot of corrupt governments that have been in place. They were corrupt before the Taliban came in. And even after the Taliban, the democratic regimes that have been popped up in that region have been very corrupt. And they've had like four different presidents over this time period. So the issue is that because it's never really been a stable region, obviously that, you know, because there's been so much political issues going on over there, plus this like, you know, Al Qaeda and a lot of these other groups were still around until like 
more recently and the Taliban was continuing to pop up in areas, it wasn't strong enough to stand on his two feet regardless. And that was what was what the military generals were saying, both under Trump and under Biden. The Republican administration was very anti-Trump on leaving Afghanistan. And the Democratic Democratic generals and their like high up, you know, foreign intelligence people were also very anti-Biden and them leaving Afghanistan. But both, whether it's Trump, whether it's Biden, doesn't really matter. Both those presidents both wanted to leave the region. Trump did not leave primarily because of all kinds of other issues that we may not know about. Maybe some would argue might have been because of COVID going on and we had other things to dealing with. So we wouldn't have the time to actually leave from that country. But there has been a process that has been in the wait for the past six years for us to leave. But we knew it wasn't the right time and this kind of thing happened. And if this didn't happen, the benefit that the people of the Biden administration was trying to get is that whenever... Biden was running for president. That was one of his first campaign promises that he had was he would leave Afghanistan. It was one of those few things that actually set him apart from all the other Democrats over there in that, um, you know, primary. But a lot of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party mainstream are very split on this issue where you're going to have people like Tulsi Gabbard on the Democrat side that was really anti us being in Afghanistan and wanted us to get out. But then you would also have somebody like um, I don't know, somebody like Rubio on the Republican side that was all about us staying in there. So it all depends on what angle you look at it, what way you look at it. And I just feel like in this situation, it's all it's all like it's all a political game going on. But in the end of the day, because we left, all this stuff happened. So regardless of whether it was caused by a Republican or a Democrat, we still have blood on our hands. Yeah. And look, I'll defend the Biden administration most days on this show. But this one has been an absolute disaster. Yes, it's true that the Trump administration started the drawdown. They significantly withdrew most of our forces such that we only had 2,000 people in the country. The Trump administration signed the agreement with the Taliban saying that 14 months from when they signed the agreement, the United States would withdraw and that one month after we signed the agreement, we would hand over 5,000 Talibani prisoners who we had in exchange for 1,000 prisoners on the other side coming over to us. That is what the Trump administration did. However, the past couple of months that Biden has come in, the second power changed hands in January. Yeah, I get that. It might ruin our relationship a little bit if the U.S. under Trump commits to withdrawing with the Taliban, signs an agreement, and then says, and Biden comes in and says, forget this treaty. We're, wa- we're going back on our word. Screw you guys. We're going to stay. I get that that could potentially harm us, but it's with the Taliban. I don't think it's going to harm us that much to amend the agreement that the Trump administration put in place. And furthermore, Pratik talked about the government going away. That government going away, they weren't even party to actually sign that agreement when the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban. So if anything, I feel like that's, you know, square one of who actually has any of the power in this situation. The Taliban knew it was the United States. We knew we had more power, more leverage than the 300,000 army um, folks that we've trained over the years, which I think that's a BS statistic. We have all these issues with ghost soldiers, people being on the Afghani payroll, people siphoning oil and other critical supplies away, and then all of a sudden sudden getting upset when the Americans stop supplying it as much and saying, hey, you guys and your government, you have to stand on your own two feet. Like, sure, close to 70,000, I'm, I'm not calling them cowards because close to 70,000 of them have died over the past 20, 20 years. Meanwhile, we've had about 3,500 people in the security forces die, I think. Tyler mentioned like 2,500 in the U.S. side. That's a lot of people to die. That's tragic. But 
the Afghan army has actually been fighting on their own. It's just, again, when you swell up to 300,000 people in a country that has been so divided along tribal lines for a long time and was only really unified under kings, you know, back 50 years ago or under the Taliban, then we kick them out after six years. And then under us, well, I, maybe not, well, pretty much under us, we in, did engage in nation building there. It's, it's just very difficult for me to, I don't know, to really have a set viewpoint on this. But the one thing I do agree and has stood out to me is I think the Biden administration really has bungled um, the way that we withdrew. And I, I see nothing wrong with, again, he sort of pushed it back. He said, oh, the Trump administration, they, they wanted us out after 14 months per the agreement with the Taliban. However, we're going to extend that a little bit to September 11th. Honestly, I think if he pulled out, politically, it would have been better for him if he pulled out the day the Trump administration said, this agreement is over, let's pull out. And then if there was chaos, he'd just say, oh, well, it's the previous president. But now you've already pushed it back. You've already adjusted it a little bit. And so you have ownership of it. And if you cannot take ownership, what are you doing in office? And so, again, it's disgusting what's going on. It's very demoralizing. You see people trying to hand babies over barbed wire fences outside of American airstrips. I mean, it really is heartbreaking. And I've been rambling a little bit. But again, I will defend the Biden administration and the Dems most days on this show. But this is one of those days where I just can't. I don't think the situation was ever going to end well, but this is ending very poorly. And one thing I also want to add, I agree with a lot of the stuff Nick said, and I just think that when it comes to this kind of stuff, we need to worry about how, we, how we're how we going to handle future foreign affairs and foreign interventions like this. And we also need to look at what what would have been the steps before that whenever we decided to leave and we should have analyzed a lot of that stuff because we did we all knew that something like this could potentially happen like they knew that uh, coming in like for the past month or so that the taliban were take getting uh, you know getting stronger they were taking over some territory but we still didn't do anything about it we just kind of sat there and were like all right well this is the situation it's been a month on end since they were taking over kandahar and taking over all kinds of large areas of afghanistan and now they took got, got, took over the capital and you know it's just like it's a sad situation that if we knew this kind of stuff was going on why didn't we step up and go back or do something different and the fact is that when it comes to afghanistan even if we had only a few troops we only had like 10,000 20,000 troops there under trump at least for the last two years um the benefit was that because america was there it's just like it was our presence demanded a lot of power doesn't necessarily mean that you know we were going to like fight a war or anything but the taliban wasn't going to attack us if america was still in that area doesn't matter how many troops we have because we have a lot more resources that we can you know do whatever we want to the taliban to shut them down more so than like you know if it was just afghanistan's government there so even if we were just to stick with the same amount of people that were there originally and just continue to you know foster like you know stabilizing that area just for another period of time like you know the argument is that we were there for so long and we would have been there for even longer but even then like if America really wanted to shut down this group and shut down this terrorist organization, we could do that. The fact was that we were just nation building there for like the last like 20 years. And I mean, if in, when it comes to us killing or getting rid of the Taliban, we had the ability to do that. But because America decided that they were going to reduce their troop count and troop count and now we're like almost basically gone, 
that's what caused the entire issue to happen is because our presence demands a lot of volume it's kind of like i don't know if you guys remember the houston rockets back in the day where like they were all like really bad players and it was tracy mcgrady and yao ming but because yao ming was there and yao ming was really tall it doesn't matter how like you know good at defense yao ming was players were so scared of getting in the paint because yao ming was in the center that's what the situation is with america it doesn't matter if America does anything or doesn't do anything, but just the fact that America is there automatically means that no one is going to do anything stupid because America is there. We, we argue about how strong or weak our defense, defense is or anything in terms of America, but in the end of the day, America, if we utilize all of the resources and all of the strategies that we had and utilize the amount of weapons that we have and, you know, like when it comes to drones and all this stuff, we can kill any group of people that we really want to kill, but we don't do that because America wanted to nation build and build that country to stand on its two feet, which failed and this is the outcome of yeah so wait we, we could talk about nation building a little bit we, you were talking about lessons we can learn potentially before and what's what's a bigger lesson than we just basically handed over 80 billion dollars of military equipment to a semi-terrorist organization now potentially a legitimate governmental organization because we tried to nation build so it calls into question the whole operation in my opinion we beat them in 10 days and we go, all right, we're going to build this into a democracy that's sustainable, that can fend off for itself and uh, get rid of these other terrorist organizations. They'll be funded enough. They'll be trained enough. But that wasn't true after 20 years. Who would? Who's to say that would, even if we didn't leave today, that would be true in 30, 40, 50 years? Um, so, Pratik, I, just I think, have to ask you, like, yeah. uh, I guess, would you still agree with our decision to stay in Afghanistan over these past 20 years? And do you continue yes. to support the idea of nation building in general? Yes, both. I think that in the end of the day, we need to look at how we're going to improve the lives of the people that are in these areas. Whether or not we look at it from an America first point of view, whether we look at it like, oh, we need to you know, build up a realist, you know, type defenses, or we need to do whatever. In the end of the day, we need to make sure that if there is a government, and if that government is persecuting, killing, torturing, ethnically cleansing their people, if they're just, you know, persecuting them to the point where, you know, they really don't have a voice and they're going to be killed regardless because the government has a monopoly to their power, we have to do something about it. And regardless, when it comes to Afghanistan, Afghanistan is one of those few nations. We have Iraq and we have Afghanistan. They have been like complete failures when it's come to nation voting. We look at countries like Germany, Japan, like even to some extent, like, you know, countries that were in Europe after World War II. Those countries were all products of nation building. Vietnam is an example that they always try to bring in a nation building argument, but Vietnam wasn't really nation building. Vietnam was just a proxy war where we were fighting with the Soviets and it was between North and South Vietnam. Like, that's a different situation. Um, or like, same as the Korean War. But like, those were different situations from literally nation voting, where Afghanistan was a pet project of the United States. Because it's not like the Taliban really had the military resources to defeat the United States. I mean, same as Saddam Hussein or any of these groups. Like, none of, the, none of these powers can actually beat the U.S. The U.S. is that powerful. And it's just we just continued to prolong it because we were trying to develop that country. And I don't think it was a bad decision. Like even now, like I would still say it doesn't matter if it takes you 30 years, 40 years, 100 years. In the end of the day, those Afghanis are also people. 
And if this was a situation, if you reversed the storyline, and if this was the United States, and we had some gov- terrorist group like Al-Qaeda take over, where we had millions of Americans being tortured and persecuted and not allowed to have any civil rights whatsoever, we would be pissed off about it as Americans. But what could you do? You're a civilian. You don't have any you don't have any weapons, you don't have anything that actually stand up against some terrorist group. And if Al Qaeda was that powerful that they could take over America, I'm arguing that they would be that powerful. So I'm just flipping the script. If you were to look at it from an Afghan civilian point of view, and you were in you were an Afghani, you would hope and wish that some country would have the balls to stand up and fight against the regime that's killing all the people that are living there and literally eliminating all their liberties, civil rights, and basically torturing many of these people to death that say or speak against their government or want to stand up against, you know, what they're doing. And I think that you look at it from that script. I know I'm rambling a little bit, but if you look at it from that perspective, I think that I would always argue that America, from a humanitarian perspective, should always get involved in some of these countries if we have the resources, the might, and the dominance to actually do it. A lot of these other countries would never step up in the game to actually help any of these people. Like, I doubt China would go help Afghanistan if America wasn't there. I doubt that there would, like, Russia would go help these people. Russia was financing the Taliban. I think that in many of these cases, we have America is that bastion of democracy whether we like it or not. And because we've always been the democracy that has financed and, you know, propped up and built democracies all around the world. And sometimes we've been unsuccessful in countries like South America, where we tried to create pro-American dictatorships. I mean, in the end of the day, America, since the since World War Two ended, has, you know, taken on this mantle of financing and, you know, developing the world. And they've been successful at times, and they've failed at times. And Afghanistan seems like a failure now. But if I mean, we don't really know if America has always been moving in and out of Afghanistan as well, because we've had so many regime changes. The Bush administration was a little bit more gung ho on Afghanistan. Obama administration was really iffy on Afghanistan. One of Obama's promises whenever he was elected is he wanted to get all the troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan. But then whenever Obama came into office, in his second term particularly, Afghanistan was really ramping up and we were doing a lot more financial aid and support to Afghanistan. And then Trump was really isolationist and Biden just kind of added on to it. So I don't really know the answer, but that would be what I would say. So, Pratik, you mentioned nation building and how it's been successful. I mean, the one thing I would say is, well, not one thing. I have a few things to say about this. Uh, Tyler, if you had anything you wanted to say after that monologue, now's your chance because I'm going to launch into my own monologue. Let's hear it. All right. So Marshall Plan in Europe, when we're building Western Europe, rebuilding Western Europe, where all of the American capital, goods, labor, etc., pours into Europe, that is something that was wanted at the time. That aid was something where they said, hey, you know what, United States, thank you for your help. Afghanistan, has that really been happening that much? A lot of what we've been putting into the country has gone to these corrupt elites who, granted, corruption has gone down a a little bit. So, for example, I've got some old statistics from the United Nations. In 2012, half of Afghan citizens paid a bribe while requesting a public service. This was down from 59% in 2009. And it was only, particularly to your point about privatization, only 30%, uh, you only had to bribe people 30% of the time in the pri- private sector as opposed to half the time in the public sector. There we go. We should privatize everything. Um, but there, I mean, look, there are, some, there are some positives. Let me be fair. 
Um, 30, <laughs> we're actually more progressive than in the United States. We're like, hey, Afghani government, 30% of your House representatives, they've got to be women. 25% of your provincial and district councils, they got to be women. And guess what? Women can actually inherit wealth and property now. They can go to school. They can do this. It's great. On, on gender, we've actually been very progressive in Afghanistan. But then you get to the reports of how the government's been carrying things out. You have all these reports of unlawful or arbitrary killings. For example, January 2020, security forces in Kandahar province, which Pratik mentioned the Taliban overran uh, more recently. Um, in 2020, January, uh, the police killed a young girl. Her father approached, reportedly approached the local army base to protest the fact that they had murdered his daughter. So they killed him too. Um, the Taliban, meanwhile, they're worse, for example, March 6th of that year, seven men in the Herat province were killed, kidnapped and murdered by the Taliban. Um, they're just civilians. Uh, the security forces regularly, this is today from the State Department, so you could say, you could cry bias, the United States government, the rest of it, but State Department is recording that there is regular torture and beating of civilians. The rule of law is arbitrary. Judges rely on codified law, Sharia, and local custom. For example, you can be imprisoned for 72 hours by police if you're suspected of a crime. Then they sort of hand you over to the court system. You can be held for an additional seven days or 14 days, depending on the count. But judges regularly sort of ignore this stuff because it is a mixture of Sharia, local, and these other customs, not just the codified law that we've sort of put in place through their constitution and their court system, because there is, you know, this sort of appeal to the way we used to do things. Hey, you go steal something, we're going to chop off your hand. That's how the Taliban thinks. A lot of that's thinking is still instilled within sort of the structures that we have. Well, not that we have in place, but that the Af Afghan government has in place to the point where people are being held much longer. Their civil rights are being violated. I mentioned earlier um, young boys being sexually abused. Eight officers in arrested in connection with that in 2020. Nothing really happened to them. In fact, the little boys who were sexually abused by the Afghani government officials are locked up in prison and charged as adults, even though they're the victims of the crime. And then there are instances of girls being imprisoned as well, and then raped and impregnated in prison by the Afghan government police forces. So these are not the best people at all the times. And what I, again, would stake between Western Europe to today is to Afghanistan is Western Europe, they wanted us there. The Afghan government, sure, some people do want us there. But as far as like the overall country, they want our money, they want our weapons, they don't give a shit about anything else. I like maybe some people do, maybe at the very high levels, but there there has been so much stuff that I've been reading about, either through the State Department, the United Nations, some of these documentaries, which actually Vice does a pretty good job of airing a lot of these things in active war zones. They do a decent job of this. But there's so much stuff that really makes your stomach just sick about it. And at at a certain point, you kind of think, hey, uh, I'm going to get out of here. And yes, life is getting better gradually. I genuinely believe, as Pratik believes, that if the United States was still engaged, life would probably be better in the long run for the Afghani civilians. But I don't know, man. At a certain point, with all the corruption that's going on, and sure, it's been coming down over the years, but with all the, like, with all of the immoral stuff that they're doing in their government, I, I just don't know how... I just don't feel like I can actively support that regime to say, yep, this is, these are the legitimate rulers. This is how you should do business. Go molest little boys and get off scot-free because no one cares. Uh, it's just messed up to me. Actually, no one cares until the Americans bring it up. And then it's like, oh, well, now we got to go make a show of it. But I don't know. It's just sick. And one thing, um, obviously, the other thing I want to add here, too, is like when it comes to the Taliban, I don't think that 
the Afghan government was that great. But I also think the Taliban is much worse. So the Taliban has been like discussing how they're planning on beheading people that were like against the Taliban before like you know all the stuff happened that are still in the region yeah, supporting they're like Americans kidnap women UK, like the yeah. translators all those guys and they're gonna kidnap ki- girls and force them into marriage and make them sex slaves to the Taliban fighters so each Taliban fighter receives a sex slave that um you know will basically be a little girl that they will basically own and that's so horrible and basically the thing is that all this stuff happened when it comes to the taliban and we i mean their argument is that oh the taliban is like you know modernized and become more progressive and all this bs like this is the issue is that you're going to have a bunch of civilians that are going to be put to death beheaded um they're gouging out the eyes of many prisoners that um you know that were protesting against the taliban right now and when it comes to like you know what nick referred to earlier about the barbed wire thing and you know like you know women are giving their kids to the government saying that let's take them so then they don't get killed and to the u.s forces to protect yeah 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 so all that stuff like i think i think the fact is that the taliban is a terrorist organization regardless of how garbage or corrupt the afghan government was prior to the taliban i mean it can't get any worse and i just think that regardless we were i mean regardless of whatever we were doing when it comes to nation building in the end of the day because america was there the people there were safer because america is not there people there are going to be killed tortured raped like it's sad and this is all because of america leaving and now you can make an argument should America have gotten gone in there in the first place, but if we didn't go in there, then the same stuff was happening back then, and it would have continued to happen because America got in there. Now, whenever we leave, it's like you know these people are going to come back and do the same thing that they were doing before, and it's like damned if you do, damned if we don't situation. But this is, I mean, it depends on what side you're on. And I would argue that in the end of the day, if it's about saving people's lives and making sure that, you know, people have some form of civil rights and some humanitarian, like, you know, abilities to be able to do what they want to do in those countries, that far exceeds anything that, you know, like, it far exceeds the argument that, oh, man, we spent $2.2 trillion over there. Because the cost of all these people dying and being murdered, you couldn't, you can't really argue that, oh man, they're, they're not Americans, they're Afghanis. Because in the end of the day, Afghanis, Americans, Pakistanis, Indians, we're all people. doesn't matter where you come from. And if you look at it from that scope, you would always argue that America should be involved in places where people are going to be tortured, murdered, raped, and kidnapped. But how many places are... How many places, like, do we see stuff like that happening? And we're not, we can't contribute. We, we aren't able. And that's what I'm how saying. How many trillions of dollars can we spread all over the world to help everyone in all these situations? Like, we're not a one world government. We're not, I, I don't necessarily see us as the police force of the world. I don't think we're able to be that. I think every civilization that's tried to colonize the rest of the world inevitably collapses because of the sheer weight of spreading themselves too thin. So I, I understand what you mean. It's just how would you pick and choose which places are being abused enough where we can go, all right, we're going to. We're going to set up shop here and make sure everything runs right for a while and then hopefully gradually leave so they can stand on their own feet. When we've proven we aren't necessarily able to do that successfully. Like, what do we learn from this situation? What can we take away and go, if we do this again, 
we're not going to make this mistake. I'm not sure I see that. I'm not sure I see a, uh, a, a way we could accomplish this in a better, like if we had gone back and done it all over again, how could we have done this better? Do, do you have an answer to that? To be honest, oh, go ahead, Pratik. I was going to say, to be honest, I think it should have been a much more, this is going to sound bad, but a much more violent military campaign at the very beginning to root out the Taliban. Because part, why did we get into nation building? The first objective was to hit back against the terrorists who launched an attack, Al-Qaeda, against us on September 11th. We went in with that purpose. And part of nation building and part of why I've actually been swayed on this in the past week, <laughs> I guess I didn't really have a strong conviction on it earlier, but I think it was a positive thing at the start because you go into this country, you work together with the coalition forces, the Northern Alliance that was already in existence um, fighting in that civil war. You go with them against your enemy, the Taliban. You pretty much beat the Taliban. They're scattered to the wind. They go away. And then what happens? Uh, you have to make sure that the region, you're going in there to sort of prevent further terrorist attacks going on in U.S. soil. And so you have to make sure that whatever government is going to be in place after you sort of scatter the current regime of terrorists, the Taliban, to the wind, you have to make sure that they're capable and competent of not letting that terrorism fester and grow again. And that's exactly what happened. I think in 2000, we sort of saw a, a decline in a lot of that stuff. But then in 2006, 2007, we started seeing big increases in this. Thousands of people ended up dying because of one, suicide bombers, two, mostly IEDs, let's be real. Some of the roads in Afghanistan are absolutely treacherous. And I think that's one of the tragedies that's going to come out of this is the fact that like, if you look at Northern Africa, after the French, British, Germans, and Italians got involved fighting there in World War II, there were landmines all over the place. People are still dying of landmines like to this day. It's been a huge issue. Um, and Unfortunately, that's going to be a thing over the next couple of months and next couple of years in Afghanistan is, you know, since they've been fighting for so long, there are going to be all these mines all over the place. And it's either one, you have to do a sweep two assume that the Taliban is like, OK, guys, well, we put the mines there, so we'll take them away. Um, but I don't know. I just think and in the beginning of it, I, I agree with Pratik's position that at the very start, I think nation building was the right thing to do. But I don't know, at a certain point in time, I think you sort of have to reassess and be like, okay, do these people really have, do they really want to have, you know, this unified government? Do they, and I, I hate using this talking point because it's like they didn't have the will to fight. Some of them absolutely did. Some of the people who were really intense in it absolutely did. But to say like 300,000 people were hardcore in favor of, oh man, we're going to have this gender fluid, beautiful democracy in Afghanistan. That's just a fantasy. And a lot of people have called this as far as, oh man, I'm reading this great book, Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall. It was written many years ago. And Nick's always one, reading, one of the man. things that um, <laughs> he sort of had three predictions. One, either the full weight of the Pakistani military falls upon the northern frontier and defeats the Taliban. Of course, the Pakistanis were two-faced and they didn't play ball with us, so that's not a thing. Uh, two, the Taliban campaign continues to hasten the fracturing of Pakistan and it becomes a failed state. Uh, that sort of happened. I mentioned 50,000 people in Pakistan. Over 50,000 people died as a result of sort of them turning their back on the Taliban that they helped create. Um, or three, Americans lose interest. The pressure on Islamabad relents, which is the capital of Pakistan. The government compromises the Taliban. The situation returns to normal with the northern west frontier left alone, but Pakistan continuing to push its agenda in Afghanistan. And that's that's sort of what ended up happening. I mean, sure, the Pakistanis now are frustrated that the Taliban isn't really listening to them because, again, they 
they sort of turn their back on the Taliban, but then try to play both ways and cozy up to them again. So <laughs> I guess Pakistan loses in all of this. Well, did you know um, uh, the Taliban originated in Pakistan? Yeah, no, that's what, in that's what I was saying yeah. earlier, where their security yep. forces, I think they're called the ISI, actually trained them up initially. Um, and that was sort of the, the, the whole parallel between pa- ethnic lines around. They're all Pashtun, regardless of which side of the border you're on. So there is some sort sense of you know brotherhood there. But again, Tyler, to your main point of, was it a good idea to nation build? Just summarizing, I think in the beginning, like Pratik said, yes, but up to a certain point, I think you sort of have to look at it and say, hey, like, are we, <laughs> are, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis, and the cost-benefit analysis wasn't there. That's why the Trump administration got out, or was trying to get out. That's why the Biden administration is getting out, and it just happened that they bungled it on the Biden administration, but I don't think Trump or Biden was wrong to try to get out, but of course, there is the humanitarian suffering, which how do you really condone that? And I think that's why a lot of the lobbying and military industrial complex, for all that you can say they wanted a money grab and they just wanted more federal contracting dollars to get even richer off this war. At the end of the day, they knew on the ground, hey, when we leave, people are going to die. They will not know how to operate this equipment. And Tyler, you mentioned this very early on in the episode. You're like, hey, we've left. The Taliban now has all this money worth of U.S. Army equipment. Dude, part of the reason why they ran over the Afghan army is the Afghan army has been saying, hey, we can't really run our airfields. We cannot run this advanced weaponry that the United States has trained us on because you've been maintaining it. It's either American troops or American contractors maintaining these sophisticated weapon systems. And once they leave, they don't know how to maintain it. How do you teach someone who has been, I mean, give, forgive me, this is going to sound pretty mean, but how do you teach someone who's been a goat herder for many years to go ahead and service an airplane. I mean, you can do it, but it's going to take a long time. And there have been reports of them like being on Zoom calls together and the rest of it. it it's just a, it's a whole mess. And I don't know, man. I, yeah. Taliban may be a little bit more sophisticated. Um, they're definitely more hardcore. But at, at the one t- on the one side, like if the Afghan army that we help train can't even use and resupply themselves with the equipment that we love for them, I don't know how the Taliban is going to take full advantage. And I think we learned our lesson on that from back in what was it the 80s or the 90s where we left a lot of equipment in the middle east and then it was sort of turned on and used against others so just to touch on one point you made before we continue um just the will to fight i think it's much easier to have the will to fight when you feel like you've got on your side and god's law and god's word instead of the government a democratic government it's a little too ambiguous and this is simply a, it's almost a medieval culture this is a very isolated place. This is a different world than we're used to living in. And when when you have the word of God behind you and you completely believe that with everything in your heart, yeah, even if you don't have enough troops and you're willing to die for your cause, you're going to be able to push farther and harder than the other side is. Well, so that's the funny thing is they're both very religious. Both the Northern Alliance and the Taliban are very religious sides. If you see like any of the videos of them, both sides before going into battle will have the full prayer, the get on the prayer rug, they will be very religious adherents. And so that's one of the counter arguments when journalists sort of go up to them and say, hey, these are your brothers. Why are you killing each other? And then that gets back to the whole tribal thing. There are different ethnic groups. The Northern Alliance is, I think, Uzbek and something else. And then sort of the Taliban is more Pashtun. But um, not to boil it all down to ethnicity, but I just wanted to say that both sides are actually very religious in, in both of them. But as Tyler was saying, one of them, has a very specific way that they interpret the Quran and Hadith, and that just happens to be the more violent one with the Taliban. Yeah. 
So I don't think I have anything different that I would say from Nick. Like, I feel like I would just ramble on and say something similar to what Nick just said. So I think that that's, that kind of wraps it up. Like, when it comes to nation building, you're never really going to have a right answer. Like, whenever you get involved in a country, you're going to get, oh, man, why'd you get involved? If some people are getting killed by some murderous dictator, then if America doesn't get involved, people will be like, why didn't we get involved? Same situation's been going on with Syria, with Assad. We had the same situation with um, Saddam Hussein. Before we got involved in Saddam Hussein in the 1980s, or late 1990s, sorry, when Bill Clinton was president, you had all these humanitarian protesters arguing that we need to get involved because Saddam Hussein has killed a third of the Kurdish population in Iraq. And then after we got get involved, the same people that were all about the humanitarian causes were then arguing, why do we get involved and what are we doing in Iraq and all this other stuff. So you're never going to win this argument. You're going to you're going to like pinpoint the humanitarian side. You're going to pinpoint the like people that were trying to increase American superiority side. And you're going to piss off the people that are going to be more isolationist, arguing that we don't need to be intervening because those aren't us. We're Americans, we're not Iraqis, and we're not Afghanis. But it's one of those that whether we get involved, whether we don't get involved, you're always going to have the same debate. So, yeah, I think what we can move on to now um, has been Biden's post-Afghanistan disaster. Well, hold on, Pratik. Oh, disaster. Oh, Pratik, hold on. Yeah, How so. does Tyler feel about all this? Because we've both had our monologues back and forth without really directly yeah. challenging each other. But what, Tyler, are you taking this in? How are you feeling about the situation? Um... No, I, I, I think I've made my point that state yeah. building, I understand why you get into it. I'm just not sure how you pick and choose which battles yeah. to take. And I'm not sure that you should exit any war without some sort of exit plan. And I think that's exactly what happened here. I think they kept pushing it down the line. I think Bush pushed, pushed it to Obama, pushed it to uh, Trump and pushed to Biden. He's like, oh, the buck's going to stop with me. But he did it with no plan. And now it's a catastrophe. So I think that's the situation we're in. And that's kind of all I have to add. But with that, we th- I think we should move on to Biden's speech and the fact that he left for Camp David in the midst of all this chaos and mess and the media is attacking him and he can't take it. For me, this is a big problem. Sure. It almost shows like you're the president. You're going to come under fire. Things are serious. People are dying because of the actions you've made. You can't run and hide from this. Even if you think it's better for your health and it'll give you a better place to think, I think the president and his actions mean something, especially in times of crisis. And when you're retreating, that's a big issue to me. Yeah, I think uh, when it came to the speech itself, Biden didn't really answer much of the questions either. He just kind of defended what his... He said he defended his decision to pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. And then he said that this kind of happened because of Trump, which we already talked about. And he's like, and this is one of those things where Biden didn't take, he didn't, I feel like the argument Biden always has with Trump is that, and a lot of the people that are anti-Trump always have with Trump is if Trump screws up, he doesn't man up to it. And this is exactly what's happened with Biden right now. Like we screwed up. Regardless of whether it was a Republican or a Democrat, in the end of the day, America screwed up. And because we screwed up, we have to man up to that at least, to the minimum. And then we have to, you know, think about what's going to happen in the future and how we're going to, you know, bring these people back and all this stuff. But then he retreats to Camp David 
um makes him you know his approval rating like tanked after this like his poll ratings went declined by 20 percent and like you know polls that you know uh, just supported afghan's exit have all fallen and you know generally speaking, but the, but they despite, were very high initially i think it was yeah like, they were it was like 75 percent of people supported it wasn't that high or something it wasn't that high it was 60 percent. it was 60 40 uh people like me were always anti-asleep but I mean, in general, the consensus was that we've been in this country for too long, and because we've been in there, now we need to get out. But the problem is that the same way Iraq became a disaster once we left, and ISIS got created, the same way that you know, with and the same situations happening now with Afghanistan is just to show that, like you know, the people that are gonna be for something will also become against it as quickly as possible and the fact is that because this happened under biden this could have happened under any president but because it happened under biden biden's gonna have a lot of flack and the fact that biden wasn't he didn't really answer any questions because he like kind of retreated to camp david because like you know all this other stuff like if and plus you have republicans here too in the same argument if this happened under donald trump man this stuff would have been all over the news people would have been pissed it would have been like oh man trump's lost the afghanistan war trump's a disaster trump doesn't know what he's doing yada 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 but like this happened under biden so biden's poll numbers only dropped 20 percent because the media doesn't you know doesn't exaggerate this to the level that they would have exaggerated under trump and i'm sure i sound like a republican here and republicans aren't gonna vote for biden anyway but from the Democratic side in their perspective, like, I mean, this this is a really sad, you know, situation for Biden. Like Biden, if this if Trump, if Biden's election was tomorrow, Biden would have low as like he had similar election numbers to Jimmy Carter did. Like inflation's through the roof, oil prices are really high, and on top of everything else, just like Iran hostage crisis back then, a bunch of Americans are still stuck in Afghanistan. Fifteen thousand and people are going to die in that country because we left and it's going to be like the same scenario where you're going to get a lot of flack so i don't know i wanted to bring that in because i feel like the poll ratings are really low right now his stuff has declined by like 20 percent in like three days this might be the worst poll this is the worst poll like you know average in terms of his approval rating since biden has taken office and like we're only six months in and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more things that happen and people may even forget about this. But I feel like in the end of the day, the whole Afghanistan blunder and us leaving Afghanistan and the stuff that's caused is going to be like a part of the Biden administration storyline. In the future, yeah. when we talk about the Biden presidency, we're going to remember the failure in Afghanistan and it's going to be pinpointed on him. So it's certainly Nick, a stain let me bring on it him. to you. <laughs> but but one thing I do want to add is yeah. we also haven't seen Kamala Harris at all. I, I don't know about her poll numbers at all, but she basically was touting the fact that, oh, we're leaving Afghanistan. I'm a big part of this. And then since all this has gone down in the past eight, 10 days, she's been dead silent. And I know as vice president, you're not getting nearly as much coverage, but that's something to take note of because I think we all expect her to run for president. Maybe the next election or the election after that. Uh, but Nick? Dude, the last time I heard of Kamala Harris, it was that meme where she was on the southern border and she's giving a press conference and she's like, people are coming into this country, don't come. 
please do not come. <laughs> and then it pans over to Trump, and it's a clip of him at a rally saying, I'm going to come. And all his supporters <laughs> yeah. are cheering. And dude, it's just hysterical. But no, seriously, that's the maybe that was a little vulgar. But that was the last I've seen of Kamala Harris was, was just that meme because she hasn't done much. Let's be real. It's the same thing like, well, dude, he, honestly, I don't think Biden could have picked a better VP. She's kind of mirroring him in a lot of ways where Obama was the superstar. He was kind of in the shadows. For example, Biden would go ahead and say, hey, I wanted us to pull out of Afghanistan back in 2009 when the troop surge was sort of announced. I didn't want us to go in there, but Obama and everyone else, they wanted us to go in. I was against it. Now for Kamala, I, I don't know if she would say something different to Biden, but she's definitely kind of in the shadow right now. And to be fair, no one cares about the VP most of the time. Like, sure, if something, like, really is going on, maybe. But, dude, like, for example, when Trump was in office, you never heard about Mike Pence. Mike Pence could have been hibernating the whole time. You never would have known. Maybe he's been a bear. Dude, maybe he's a holographic projection. Republicans hated Mike Pence after a little bit, too. That was the other irony. Because we're like, yo, Trump is this much. Imagine how crappy Pence would be. Pence is like a social conservative wag job. For people that voted for Trump, that might have been more moderate-seeking than the people that were more socially conservative, your cruise-ish types. Sorry, continue. No, I mean, look, that was exactly <laughs> it. And I think so. The reason Trump, you become VP is to get clout to become president in the future. Exactly. And I, I even think Mike Pence tried or to, to write do a that nice during book. the corona. Yeah, during the coronavirus situation, I think Mike Pence tried to do it, but since Trump blundered in so many ways you know i I don't think he could take much credit for anything so yeah i so for one thing that trump said in his speech which as much as pratik loves him here's what he said and this is august 21st 2017 this is the we're recording this august 19th 2021 so exactly four years so it's the exact same split into his presidency that trump said this as biden is right now today so trump said in that year 2017 quote we are not nation building again. We are killing terrorists. And he's like, we need, uh, end quote, we need to seek an honorable and enduring outcome. Consequences of a rapid exit are predictable and unacceptable. He blames Pakistan for a lot of stuff. But I, I did find that point very interesting is we're not nation building again. We're killing terrorists. That's the point of us being there. And I guess that goes all the way back to our previous conversations and how critique on the neocon side is like, Hey, we're there. Part of it is nation building. And Trump comes in. He's like, we're not doing that anymore. Get out of it. And then he gets sucked into it a little bit, but at the end of it, signs a deal and starts to get out. Pompeo had a whole press conference with the Taliban. I know that's going around online a little bit now where people will post pictures of Pompeo, uh, Trump's secretary of state sort of meeting with the head of the Taliban for an agreement. I did find it a little funny that, with all the stuff going on domestically with politics, Pompeo and the head of the Taliban put on masks for a photo op. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny, but I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a segue. I found that funny, but Pratik, I know you have a certain feeling about satire. And let's be clear, this really is a terrible situation. Um, and how have you felt about, I mean, a lot of comedians, like for example, John Stewart did this awesome skit where he was actually very serious the day after 9-11 or the days after 9-11, and that's kind of what propelled him to the national stage and why people loved The Daily Show at that time is because he had a very sincere take on it. It wasn't all these like cheap, crappy jokes. It was very real at the time and really spoke to you as an American the days after 9-11. So, Pratik, how have you felt about the recent, I guess, Colbert and Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyer skits that they've been doing as a result of us leaving? 
I think that this is like the wrong time. I mean, this is this is my perspective is that this there's a right time and there's a wrong time to discuss these kind of things. So like, you know, there's a right time where you need to, you know, crack jokes about this, but in the end of the day right now, I mean, I wouldn't I don't find this funny at all. Like, I think that we need to avoid these kind of comedic satires and stuff until you find the right time. And I'll always all I mean, as always, the right time, you never know what that is. Like, I'm sure there was a time period before they started making jokes about the Holocaust. Like, the Holocaust was really bad. We don't make jokes about the Holocaust. But now they have movies like Inglorious Bastards where they're trying to make it more funny and, you know, kind of cinematic at the same time. But written by Jewish directors, let's just be clear on that. It's not like Joe Schmoe's like, oh, the Holocaust, hilarious. It's like an actual, you know, someone who's Jewish. That's my point. That's my point is that, you know, if I was an Afghani and all this stuff was going on, if I was an Afghani living in America, so if I was an Afghani American, and let's say I turned on TV and there was Steve Colbert and Steve Colbert is making a mockery out of this whole situation. And I have families and family members and friends back in my homeland that are going to be literally killed and persecuted and tortured to death because the Americans left and all that stuff. But because in the end of the day, that's going to be the situation and the Taliban is going to kill all these people. Like, I don't think that this is funny at all. We shouldn't even be thinking about that kind of stuff, like, you know, in a funny manner. Like, there is a time in a place for things, situations like this. I don't think it is, like, three days after all this stuff goes down. Like, I feel like, I mean, sure, like, you need to have freedom of speech and all this stuff, and it all sounds great on paper. But if that was us, if that was Americans, and that was what was going on in our homeland, and, you know, we were in some other country watching TV and Steve Colbert or like Greg Gutfield or some other bozo like comedian comes on stage and is like, you know, making a satire or satire show about it. I think that we'd all be pissed. And if you look at it from your angle, if you look at it, wow, what if this was me? You won't you don't want to think that, you know, right now is the best time to be having hacking jokes about what was going on, because in the end of the day, like, I mean, if this was like, I mean, if like your same argument with the Holocaust, if like killing a bunch of Jews isn't funny, the same way killing a bunch of Afghanis isn't funny. These are all people. Doesn't matter whether you're American, doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're Muslim. At the end of the day, when people die, like that could be you. That could be your situation. You could be in that country. You could be a civilian in that country. And if that is happening on, you know, from your perspective, you have to look at it in that angle and you have to be like, you know, there's a time and place for everything. Doesn't matter if something is a far left skit, a far right skit, doesn't matter who is going about it, who's cracking the joke. You need to look at this stuff in a humanitarian angle. We need to see what the situation and how it's transpiring. And then maybe like five, six years from now when it's no longer an issue or I mean, it's probably still going to be an issue. But when it's not something that is mainstream, then maybe, you know, do something. But right now it's only been two days and a bunch of Afghanis are going to be put to death because a terrorist organization is now in control of their government because America left. We need to make sure that that kind of stuff i don't find it funny and if anything if i was an afghani civilian and or if i was an afghani american and i was watching that thing i'd probably never watch stephen colbert again and that's my point is that you know there's a time and place for everything and in this situation i don't think that this is the right time to be cracking jokes about a bunch of afghanis being killed because of the taliban taking over well generally i feel like comedy is an analgesic for people it helps them it helps comfort them in times of sorrow and sadness and 
when the world's a horrible place, it's somewhere you can turn. So I don't necessarily agree with you that, oh, there's a time limit. There's a, You have to wait a certain period of time to make jokes on something. But the more sensitive a topic gets, the more careful you have to be about the jokes. Because if you're missing those jokes, they could end horribly. And you're right. If you're an Afghani, listen to it. You would never watch them again. The, what, I, I listened to the Colbert skit. I didn't think much of it was funny. But like, what do you have an example of a joke that maybe really hit you? And you're like, wow. Why did he say that? That just it, it just it's just uncomfortable to say that because I'm not quite sure I heard that. So I'd like to hear. See, I don't. I, I mean, I can't really quote anything directly. Is it just talking my point about is just? Yes. My point is just talking about it broadly in a okay. comedic angle. It's only been like four days since it all happened. Look, look, like, I, I agree with I would I agree with you. But in my opinion, mockery is a powerful tool. Um, I, I don't necessarily believe that they should be prohibited from talking about it on a topical political comedy show. I, I don't, I, I'm not, I, I don't feel really see like a problem whenever, I mean, as I said, the, the consequences of what's going to happen because the Taliban took over from like, you know, situ like girls being raped to like, you know, like sex slaves and things like that. Like just situations really bad. And I don't think that, you know, there, as I said, I'll, I I disagree with you just because I think that there is a time and manner, like, for certain things. And, like, if you're going to go about something like this and try to make it funny, at least wait for, like, a month minimum. Because this is all, like, what's been on our minds. Like, this has been what's being talked about. Like, this week in the news has been lame. Like, nothing else has happened. But you don't think it helps this. you process the situation? No. Like, many Americans, like... They're really distraught by this, and this might bring them some sort of comfort. Not not thinking the serious situation is not serious, but just trying to bring some kind of light to a world that's gotten so dark. I, I think that there are some things that are funny. There are some things that aren't funny. And I think the, gratitude, the, the brevity of the situation and how bad it can be, I mean, because we don't know and because this could be much worse than we're even, like, talking about it right now, like, I don't think that, you know, it's, I mean, it, it's especially not our place either, okay? It's the same way that, you know, like, as Nick said, Inglourious Bastards was made by a Jewish director. This kind of stuff, I mean, I mean, the Holocaust happened in the 1940s or 1930s. This is, this happened a week ago. Like, we don't even know what's going to happen. We don't even, I mean, do we still have Americans over there that are like, potentially going to be killed because they're in afghanistan right now and the fact is that we don't know what's going to happen to them we don't know if they're going to be back those uh, americans could be related to somebody here like i mean i just think that you know if you you have to look at this stuff on a little bit of a humanitarian angle you have to look at it as if this was if this was you i mean what would you what would what would happen if this i mean this skit was going on and you were thinking about your american relative that is in afghanistan right now or like if you were Afghani or whatever. Like I just think that there is a time. I don't think that com comedy has its place, but I don't think it's like three days after you know the world is gonna end for the people that are in Afghanistan. Like I think gravitas is important, and I think even Colbert, at least initially, said how horrific the situation was. I don't think he's going look at this joke of a situation; these people are being raped and murdered. I. I I'm not sure I see it that way. I think there is a place for irreverence almost at all times because we're in such a serious world. We have plenty of people that are willing to be serious, and I understand that some people might find it insensitive, and they shouldn't watch the program at that at time. That time, quite frankly, it's. I mean, that's just my position. Nick, do you have any thoughts on this? 
Man, Tyler blaming the victim right now. <laughs> you can turn off the TV, just stop the well, bullying. Well, look, time heals all <laughs> wounds, right? But I don't necessarily think the time is necessary to heal all wounds. I I, I, I gotcha. Yeah, I think, but to your point, I, I think you had the most important thing, which is, like, if you're going to approach something that is recent and horrific, you have to do it really well. Yeah. If you're lazy yeah. about it or if your stuff falls flat, it's not a good look for anyone, and it can really tank one year and I, career and I completely and be a bad reflection yeah. but i do i do agree with you which is fundamentally i think you should be able to joke about everything and anything but again some jokes uh, they're not that funny and really it depends on the audience and the context so i think pratik had some good points but ultimately i think just as far as like base thinking on this should you be allowed to joke about anything yeah, we have free speech. It, I agree with that. Yeah. Joke about wouldn't it? Wouldn't want. it be worse if this whole this whole situation is going on? He's on a political comedy show and he just doesn't mention it. Like to me, that's almost a worse situation. I, I think part of what he does, at least someone like Stephen Colbert, is to present the news in a in a way that people can understand and maybe get some relief from, even if it is horrific. Because so much of world events are horrific things that we don't necessarily want to see or talk about, but it makes them palatable for people. So I, I personally think there's a place for it, even if it, a lot of people find it disrespectful. I think, I mean, I feel like I, I've kind of persuaded a little bit on y'all's argument, but I just think that, you know, generally speaking, I'm not usually authoritarian. I feel like I've become very authoritarian nowadays. I'm like, <laughs> you you say that too often. Mandating vaccine. <laughs> now I'm like, you know, anti-people creating comedy sketches about something that happened two days ago where people are what, going What about to the, the guy, the, 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 the uh, what was the Charlie Hebdo uh, thing in Paris where the guy was executed because he drew Muhammad and you're not supposed to draw Muhammad. And you can't joke about that. I mean, to me, yeah. it's almost on the same lines. If... if if we're going to, oh, are you going to outlaw it? If that was your argument, I would be 100% against it. But I can understand yeah, yeah, being insensitive and people not liking it. That's, yeah, okay. I'm, that's not, I'm not pro-censorship. I mean, obviously, like, I'm the same person that was anti the hijab ban and gave, like, some big rant over why, like, you know, it's all stupid and people should be able to wear whatever they want to wear. But I think in this situation, I would have probably, I mean, I just have my own personal opinion. I would have gave it at least a week or two and maybe talked about it i think that maybe i'm just i feel like i'm on the losing side of this argument maybe to some extent because you know there'd be some situations where you i mean you won't feel as connected to it or you will feel as connected to it and sometimes the comedy thing does bring it bring some humor and bring some happiness to you but i think i i'm, I'm a little bit split on what i wouldn't mandate banning it or anything i just think that it's one of those that same way i wouldn't go into a mosque and like you know start yelling anti-muslim stuff same way we wouldn't go into a christian play church and start yelling a bunch of anti-christian stuff same way you wouldn't go to a hindu temple and start yelling a bunch of anti-hindu stuff like i think that you know there is a place for whenever you say some kind of things and i think that i mean even though there's not a dedicated time I guess my argument is just that, you know, there will be an accepted time period for when you're like, okay, it's been enough time, now we'll get into it. I mean, sure, something like the riots that happened in January 6th, that's a little bit different because it happened in America. Like, sure, we're all somehow connected to that. Like, with the Taliban kind of thing, even if America left, 
the problem is we're not that connected to that situation compared to the people that are there. So I just think it's more like it's more it, you're looking at it from a very you have to look at it from if you were in that perspective with the January 6th riot, it all impacted us in some way. Some of us were, you know, less well, against the riot. Some were more pro the riot, but we all had an opinion about it with this is like people are going to be killed. I just think that, you know, there's a little bit more sensitivity that goes into that. So I, I read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and he talked about in the concentration camps how a lot of what got them through was joking about the horrific things that were happening to them, what guards would say to them, and all that. So that goes back to my point of comedy, even in the worst situations in the world. Louis C.K., you mentioned he was in Russia. Um, there was a situation where... There were these kids running around. Uh, Louis C.K. was sitting on a bench ne- next to a dude whose shoe, the sole of his shoe, had ripped off. So he tells, he waves some of the kids to come over. He hands them a glue. The kids hand this guy a glue stick, glues his shoe together, puts it back together. And Louis C.K. is like, wow, that's amazing. You knew they had that. And then the kids immediately snuff the glue and get high. And then they just hit Louis C.K. and this man look at each other and just start laughing. It's like even in the worst, most horrific, terrible situations in the world, People are managed, managing to push through, and a lot of the time they do it with comedy because, again, it helps people survive the tough situations. So while I understand it's insensitive and you can find it very distasteful, I'm not sure that putting any sort of limit on the period of time you can talk about things is helpful. Maybe there's someone in Afghanistan laughing his ass off about this American show. He's like, thank you for saying something I couldn't say because I'm in this shitty situation, but at least someone could say it. So that's my perspective. I think we'll just leave it at that. I feel like no, that's, we're... that's a great point. Although, yeah. Tyler, I, to You're be right. fair, I do find it a little funny how you compared, you know, his experience in Mansur just for being literally being in a Holocaust concentration camp. You're like, this is a terrible situation. You want to know another terrible situation? These kids huffing glue in oh, Russia. Sorry, sorry. It was it was what? during the fall. Sorry, it was during the fall of the Soviet Union. That's important context. Oh, okay. It was like okay. it was a terrible time. Mean. Everyone's in poverty. No one has money. The kids are like wearing distraught, uh, dilapidated clothing. It's just all awful. You know. Gotcha. So that, For, sorry, that was my point. Yeah. Initially, I was like, man, yeah. one of these sounds a lot my worse bad. than the other. <laughs> no, you could. Yeah. Well, with so, yeah. that, I, I, I think. See, we, I we saw Pratik giggling there. Look at that. Yeah, we saw we saw it. We talked plenty about Afghanistan, satire, Biden, everything in between. We would do a Biden gaff of the week, but that was pretty much this whole week's episode. So, uh, thank you guys for tuning in. That was episode forty-one of Politicana. Uh, we enjoy you watching the show, and we'll keep bringing you content. So, any last words, guys? Yeah, depending on no. what state you're in, I know they're actually doing this in uh, Virginia and the D.C. area a little bit. Um, actually, some church organizations are sort of fundraising. Um, one for volunteers, and two, just if you have anything to give to uh, some of the refugees who are, <coughs> sorry, actually going to be resettled here in the United States. So, if there's any, if you know this subject has actually touched you in any way, and there are refugees going to your area, or if this is something that you just want to help some folks who have been uh, persecuted resettle in our country, which I do think is, if not the greatest, one of the greatest countries in the world. Uh, for some of our communities and Americans are just really nice people in general. So if if you know you care about this thing and you do want to help out in some way, I would just say check into your local resources to actually see if any refugees are being settled in your area. Um, everything helps. Time, even if you have no money, anytime they're just looking for general volunteers. 
No, I feel like we we had a lot of opinions and debates, but I feel like this is important just because we also get our own thoughts out of this too. So whenever we debate about this stuff, you know, how controversial, how intense it is, it also gives us another light. Like now I'm thinking about, man, maybe I'm wrong about this comedic satire thing and I should give this another look. Like, see, because we're debating about this, because we're conversating about this, if conversating is an actual word, I don't really know, <laughs> but conversing, um, <clears throat> because we're conversing about this stuff, it I, I, it gives you more of a opinion and it makes you more, um, you know, it draws you into understanding different perspectives yeah. and makes you become you more well-rounded as a person. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, this kind of show allows us to be able to talk about this stuff. And because we're talking about it, we're also bringing out our opinions to you guys. So, I mean, we're really thankful that you guys are willing to listen to us and hear what we have to say. Because um, obviously, even us three, we don't really agree on everything. But because we're able to debate and and have conversate is not a word, I'm sorry, converse about this. Uh, it makes us all better people, I think, yeah. as a whole. And how boring would it be if we were all the same person with all the same opinions? So with that, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We will catch you next week. Later. Later.